Welcome to Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. I am Seth Shapiro. And I'm AJ Speaks. After winning a BAFTA nomination for their first documentary, McQueen, a Greek tragedy about fashion designer Lee Alexander McQueen, Peter Edigi, and Ian Bonhomme turned their attention to another powerful subject, the Paralympics, its history, its challenges, and its awe-inspiring athletes. Edigi, with his masterful writing, and Bonhomme with his dynamic visuals, made Rising Phoenix more than just a documentary, but rather a cinematic masterpiece that cast the athletes not as disabled, but as superheroes straight out of something you would see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm going to keep it real with you. This doc was challenging for me to watch due to my own insecurities. But after talking to Peter and Ian, I realized that was their intention. They wanted to open the viewer's eyes to a topic many may have avoided. And that's exactly what happened to me. Ian and Peter have such great chemistry. It shows in the film and in our conversation. The transparency Ian shared with us was refreshing. And Peter's attention to detail makes it obvious why they make such a great team. I think you will truly enjoy this episode of Beyond the Lens presented by Diesel Films. On today's show, we welcome two cinema artistes from the United Kingdom, Ian Von Holt and Peter Atedgi. And I want to first congratulate you both on your sports Emmy this year. That is no small feat. Oh, actually, you. actually, just keep it there. Right so I can just do the little swerve and then come back and hide it again. Nice back piece as evidenced by mine. Oh, oh I like it. congratulations. I just have a regional one behind me, so forgive me. Oh, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> Ian and Peter, we'd like to break this podcast into three acts, with the first act being your story. Peter, let's start with you. Where did you grow up and where did your love of storytelling come from? I grew up in London and I think my love of storytelling came from my first visits to theatre and cinema when I was, you know, a top, like most filmmakers, those first experiences of the lights going down in a cinema or a theatre and then the curtain coming up and something happening, taking you into another world, were just like the major inspiration really from the from the get-go. I loved showing off as a kid. I, I tried to become an actor and I was terrible at it. Unlike my compadre here, who um, was a professional actor for a while. I always thought one day I'd like to direct, but I got too caught up doing many other jobs in film in many different departments over the years and falling in love with each and every, every one of them. But it's been fantastic. The last sort of four or five years, we've made a couple of films together. I've had a, a wonderful ride doing that. Ian, Peter alluded to your childhood acting. Tell us a little bit about that and how you got started. I mean, I was another of a exotic child. So my mom actually got me into a theater school when I was seven years old and completely fell in love with the, um, we say les, les planches in French, which is actually, you know, the, the wooden uh, thing. I love the idea of performing every week. I love the idea of that direct connection with an audience, the laugh if you were doing a comedy, the, you know, the sadness. And even from a very young age, you could really sense things. And a bit like Peter, I, my mom was really a lover of cinema. I, I, I never had a dad. So I just grew up with my mom. So she took me to a lot of movies, a lot of French films. And it, I did watch some of the commercial stuff, but friends and my mom, that's one thing we, we don't share with Peter. Peter has a credible love for James Bond. From a very young age, I didn't like James Bond and all those big movies and all those franchise stuff. So I remember falling in love with uh, cinema completely. I was 10, 11 years old and I went to see Louis Mal film Au revoir les enfants, which is an autobiography of him about saving Jewish kids during the Holocaust and the Second World War. And I remember being overwhelmed with emotion that I just thought it'd be an amazing, you know, if you can make 200 people in an audience feel that much sort of talent, let's call it talent. And then I just carried on with the, the acting and I started to do a lot more filmmaking stuff, projecting images in 
clubs and creating visual stuff and graphic stuff. So that's the two love from the acting side and from the visual side. I was born and raised in Switzerland, French mom, a Swiss father, and then I moved to the UK when I was 19, 20, and uh, never looked back. I was attracted by the Great Britain is a great history of filmmaking. I was first studying in New York, but got worried about the green card, where at the time, the United Kingdom was still in Europe, and I was able to potentially get a job. Now it's another issue. 20 years down the line, look how the world can change. Absolutely. Ian, talking about... Uh, this film of Voir les Enfants. I mean, we've had that. We almost work, started working together by accident. Yeah, I mean, for me, seeing Voir les Enfants, that particular film, for the first time, was you know one of those revelatory moments that you know you kind of like sense. This is why I want to work in this medium. Peter, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? Oh, totally by accident. In fact, um, this is so, so beautiful. You've, you've put this together as three acts because everything is connecting so nicely narratively. But it was because of James Bond. I did some work on Spectre, the last Bond movie. And at the same time, I was asked to sort of craft a, a documentary about the James Bond franchise. And that was my first experience of documentary. And it was produced by Passion Pictures, who are one of the biggest documentary producers in the UK and in fact globally. And that experience sort of gave me an insight into this whole other medium that I'd never worked with really. And it was just the delight of putting together archived with footage that we filmed, with stills, with music. It was much more flexible in a sense than three-act drama is. There's always the tyranny of the script. It's much more improvisatory. And I wasn't directing that, I was writing it. And I worked with the director of the Bond documentary on a film about Marlon Brando, which was a much weightier subject, an incredible thing to work on. We worked with Brando's own archive, recorded archive. So that was a real privilege. That was a that was an amazing experience. And then, you know, I was kind of like really thinking, what do I want to do next? And that's when I met Ian and we decided to work together on a documentary about Alexander McQueen. Ian, walk us through that process. What was your big break? And then walk us into the Alexander McQueen project. More than a big break, I think it's a slow, painful, step-by-step break (laughs) of this industry, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I started... Uh, out of film school, which I miserably failed and got thrown out and was doing, as I said, loads of club visual. I started another company called Pulse Films uh, in 2004, and that company grew much bigger. And we ended up actually uh, parting ways because the company was swallowed within a big conglomerate. And during that time, I shot a huge amount of commercial and music videos. So my sort of approach to filmmaking was very much from a visual side and trying to, you know, in a three and a half minute music video, the first frame and the last frame, as as important as every single frame. Same with a commercial, you know, you sign off every single shot. The 100, 150 commercial and videos that I shot all range from different style and genre and animation, stuff with FX, sports stuff, beauty stuff, fashion stuff, taught me a lot of craft element. I always wanted to make movies. And then I developed a film on the side of the, the, the day-to-day career and that got into fruition. We, we managed to finance that with our business partner at Misfits, uh, D. Ryder, one of the producers of McQueen as well. And she's an exec on Rising Phoenix. And out of that, we made a film called Ali Cats, which was a thriller. We had no money. We managed to scrap around $900,000, $950,000. But the film did quite well. We sold it worldwide to Universal Studio. We recouped all our money for the in- investors, plus their interest, etc. And people just backed us up to set up another company, which was Misfits. And one of the first project we had in Misfits was actually McQueen. We partnered with another production company called Salon Pictures and Peter came on board to write the script and develop the idea and the approach with me and then we kind of 
created a deck together and uh, yeah and went off to Berlin Film Festival in 2017 I remember and we fully financed it in three four days it was incredible you know you have so many stories how film get made in terms of financing part and all sorts of different you know models happen and this model was the easiest way ever everything else was hard the financing of it was easy you know I couldn't believe it when I heard that we got the we had the finance for it because as Ian said I mean I think the, the the quickest that any finance had ever come together on something I'd worked on previously was sort of five years ten years you know it was mad three days and we were in Peter it seems like your strength in the process is your writing skill how does the dynamic between you and Ian work he does the work I give the orders <laughs> <laughs> he's not wrong <laughs> it actually works pretty well because I think we do have certain strengths. I mean, Ian has had that whole directing focus as a, in commercials and pop promos and all of that. You know, my career tilted much more towards screenwriting and script development and really thinking about uh, how you construct a story. So in a way, th those are very complementary skills. But we take a, you know, a, I think it would be fair to say that we take a great interest in the other aspect of uh, uh, that we don't have so much and we work very closely together on uh, on every aspect of, of our films it kind of tends to work uh, I think Ian gives the orders and I take them absolutely we've got a good friendship and a good bond between us and I think that we like to operate vis-a-vis -vis other people in a in a similar way we have similar values uh, in a sense when it comes to creating a good team and a good way of working on set and in the edit and so on it's just worked very well I mean I'm sure that when we started we didn't sort of envisage the that four or five years later we'd still be stuck with each other but it's um yeah it's worked very well i think both of us didn't come from the conventional documentary background and what would i say the conventional documentary background is you know potentially more observational where you know you'd find a story or a character or different characters and you spent one two three four months years following and then you go into the edit and then that's where the story comes we we both come more from the the fiction where we are more attracted with stories which we kind of craft before we go out there and actually start doing interview so we do create a storyline a narrative almost an emotional journey we would like to tell we generally actually choose a genre almost you know for McQueen it was like a Greek tragedy and for uh, Rising Phoenix we said it'd be amazing to make a superhero movie within the realm of documentary and let alone passports. And I think the other element is we both feel that sometimes documentary, some documentary are amazingly shot. I'm never going to lie to that. But there's so many other tools that the filmmaking palette is allowing, which are not really explored. Peter and I talk at length about our approach and one thing coming again from the world of fiction, we like the idea of moving into things, you know? Documentary, if you interview people, it's very 2D. The idea of, you know, tracking in, moving into the story narratively, emotionally, but visually as well. How do you create this idea that you can just go behind your subject? I'm not talking about doing an interview where we're not very keen on that. We like when it's kind of slick and and, and simple but we, you know we, we've started using CGI when we do our FX things and uh, in Rising Phoenix we, we did a lot of movie moment we tried to make it extremely cinematic and elevated and I think that love of trying to break the rules not that there's rules in documentary as Peter um, very eloquently put it before documentary allow you to do anything but we thought we could add up a little stamp to it and I think we discovered through our last two movies and now the TV series we're producing we discovered a sort of ways of working in terms of narrative and in terms of visual side and in terms of how we approach our subject and how we place them as movie characters within the, the, the story all those things have made it that we ended up 
creating our own Lila Star. You know what? You you talked about Rising Phoenix, and let's get into it. That's Act Two for us, and it's a 2021 Sports Emmy Award-winning documentary that truly was a masterpiece. It made me a little uncomfortable because I'm not always comfortable looking at people and seeing people that don't have arms or fingers or hands. But it was a good discomfort. As it went on, I realized like, who gives a shit about me? Like, this is about these people and what they go through. So I understand exactly why you won the Emmy for this because it was a powerful documentary. But the way you shot it, the way you guys did it. So let's dive into that a little bit. How did this documentary come about? How did you guys get involved? We'd made McQueen, and it had come out, and it had got some BAFTA nominations, which was great. But we had this one very, very tempting offer to do something about the Paralympic movement. You know, it was immediately something where we felt that there was going to be a lot of emotion because of the stories, not just of the athletes, but of the whole movement from the founding father Ludwig Gutmann, from the ashes of the Second World War, creating this extraordinary movement and ideal. So we kind of like got very much captured by that. And felt that we could take the audience on a real emotional roller coaster ride, which is what we'd been able to do with McQueen.、Um, and so, although that it isn't obvious there's any link between the two films, that was the thing for us is that we really thought we can take an audience on a ride with this. And so, that was the kind of like the first impulse. And then we met the producers, one of whom had. Uh, been nurturing this idea for over a decade, and who'd been involved in putting together the the London Olympics and Paralympics. And ever since then, ever since 2012, he'd sort of had this dream of making a movie about the Paralympics. And they were very responsive to our ideas and our approach. And that was the key thing, really. That once we realised that we were going to be able to make the film as we felt it should be made, with the kind of what Ian was talking about the elevated visuals, with that very sort of emotional, dramatic storytelling, and that we were going to have the support of Of a number of、uh, Paralympic athletes who were already involved with potentially with a film, it became a kind of a bit of a no-brainer, really.、Um, and pretty quickly, we got wrapped up in in, in making it. Ian,、uh, we see documentaries of all budgets. Documentaries can be small budgets; they can be big budgets. I think from watching Rising Phoenix, seeing the Greek sculptures, seeing the cinematography, the locations. I mean, it was fantastic. I was curious, where did the financial backing come from to make such a beautiful and what I consider a high-budget documentary? Not you, Seth. You're completely right. It was an high-budget documentary. Peter alluded to the the producers that approached us. One of the producer, Greg Nugent, had actually nurtured the idea, but not only that, he had actually fully raised the finance, the budget north of two million dollars. He was doing justice to the movement, the ambition to want to be at the top level. They would have been, you know, maybe low budget. People would have had to concentrate more on the story, and maybe it would have become a bit too emotional or sentimental or anything like this. We had a blank canvas, and literally the producers John Batsek and Greg were like, "Guys, we like you. We like we like what you've done on McQueen. We trust you." Go for it. They let us go for it with the music we were we designed and we created with Daniel Pemberton. So we could choose one of the greatest. He just won Composer of the Year at the World Music Awards. At the same time, we were working with him. He was working with、um, Aaron Sorkin on the Chicago,、uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven and Enola Holmes. And then in the middle of that, he would fit the two little Muppets, Ian and Peter. So, but the idea was like. You know, they put the, mo- the the money where the mouth was, and they really wanted to make something. So, in that was even, you know, I, I I'm happy to say, it. Netflix at that stage wasn't even involved, so they didn't finance it. They obviously bought the project, and they were involved very 
early on and they saw the potential of the project and well done Netflix. They came in at a very early stage when other people didn't see the potential of what we were making and or or the audience that it could reach. When Netflix saw it, Netflix saw it that we call it the, the 15%. They wanted to reach out to the 15% of the world population which lives with a disability. And they loved the film that the film was pushing further those boundaries because Peter and I, we want to make a film for everyone. We want to make a film for the younger audience. We want to make a film who can change minds. And again, to change mind, the subject matter is really important, but you need to bring a certain level of entertainment. You need to get people that might be uncomfortable watching something to actually be transported either visually, sonically, emotionally, as Peter said, or truly just by the stories. It's so amazing. And again, there were so many dark stories in our uh, culture, in our civilizations about, you know, tragic moment and the Second World War and the Holocaust is a tragic moment and that gentleman immigrating somewhere. So there's a story of immigration, reinventing yourself. And then creating a movement, which right now is almost the equal of the Olympics, which was created decades earlier and just sits on this ideal of perfect human being. And, and he says, okay, our society considered all my, you know, the, the soldiers that come back from the front, which are disabled or missing an arm and stuff like this, and people which might have been born like this. Actually, they are as good athletes. They're amazing. We should celebrate them. Sports should be should be a celebration of human spirit. And he saw that in, from 1948. It's just, all of that is amazing. So again, if we talk just about the financing, the financing allowed us to create exactly the piece we feel needed to be put out there. Any lower budget would have fall flat. And it's really funny. You see it with a lot of projects where you're like, ah, it's really good. The subject matter is really good. Oh, there's something missing. And sometimes it's because of the budget ambitions. And sadly, it happens. In our case, it was. It, I think it, it was greatly rewarding. So all kudos to the producers to have managed to raise that finance. You know, as Ian says, we wanted to create a spectacle. And that spectacle wasn't just because we wanted to splash a lot of cash. But, you know, we wanted to show that the Paralympic movement is not this sort of like thing to be pitied. The second thing after the Olympics, we wanted to put it on a pedestal. So we really wanted to elevate the visuals and make it feel like a big movie. So it was important to have that money, uh, to have a good budget, I think, for, for, for the subject. Take us into the process, because now that I've got to listen to you both, I kind of get a feeling like, Ian, for you, each participant was almost shot like a video, like a music video, and you dove deep into it, and it was artistic. And then, Peter, you you guys would work together to blend the story all the way through. Walk us through the process of taking the participants and tying the story all the way through. How did you guys work together on that? A lot of the archive we knew we could access was going to be sports archive mm-hmm. or there's not that much, you know, because many of the athletes don't have, you know, LeBron James has got every single possible ama- amazing top end visual about him. Same as the top uh, soccer player, Ronaldo or Messi. A lot of our athlete- athletes within the, the para sport might not have been featuring in some of the high end commercials or some of the visual, etc. Et so we just, as Peter said, how can we change that? How can we change the perspective? I would always, for me, the sequence of Ntando, which is the um, South African double amputee blade runner, the fastest man on the planet on two blades, and him running around close to, obviously, he wasn't where he's from exactly, but all his story was from, and creating those amazing visuals, him running with a cheetah, finding out that actually his blade was called cheetah after we had actually booked the cheetah to film with it. All those <laughs> things made him a hero made him someone special and incredible. And because we knew 
his story. We had talked to him. We knew all the emotional bit we wanted to do, but we just didn't want to only tie it up with some archive of him when we were going to use that. But we always wanted to just have that little bit of, as we mentioned earlier, the superhero. That was one of our concepts. We wanted to just make them slightly above, you know. When we did those, when we shot those portrait moments where friends and Nintendo is with, is with, with the cheetah or the American wheelchair racer, Tatiana McFadden, she's always seen in a, in a gear, in a racing gear. What about making her look like a beautiful model or actress and sitting on a, on a chair in that beautiful house and property next to a wheelchair, but looking like a million dollar woman. You see what I mean? Not only just like a sweaty race, having race and, and giving all your guts, feet and blood on the... So it was all, all those, those, those elements that connected that with their own emotional backstory. No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, because funnily enough, we talked about the presentation of the athletes almost before we started thinking about the, the overall storyline and so on. That was so key to getting into the story and how do you bring together, you know, because we knew we were going to have like seven, eight, nine athletes that, whose stories we were going to want to tell. And we knew that we were going to want to tell this extraordinary story, of the origin story of the movement of Ludwig Gutmann leaving Nazi Germany and, um, and, uh, and beginning the Paralympic movement in the UK, first of all, by working with paraplegic soldiers who'd come back from the D-Day landings. We knew we wanted to have those two elements. So work with present day athletes and work with that, that story. And how do we bind all of this together? I think really one of the things that we realized almost immediately uh, because Greg and John had actually made a sort of like a five minute sort of potted history of the Paralympics and in it there was this moment that neither of us realized had happened which was that the Rio Paralympic Games after the Olympics had basically almost got cancelled that just struck us as extraordinary because of course we knew that, that that was 2016 but we knew that in 2012 the Paralympics had had the most famous Paralympic edition of the Paralympic Games that happened in London in 2012. Huge success, packed stadia for the first time, I think, ever in a Paralympics. The athletes being taken to people's hearts, you know, in the same way that Olympic athletes were. And then in 2016, almost cancelled. So, you know, we kind of like thought, okay, so what happens if we almost, that becomes like the ruling principle of our story. We go from this, we start with triumph and we end with near despair and disaster out of which comes another triumph. And um, that echoed very well some of our, sorry, some of our athletes' personal life. We had the, one of our athletes saying, you know, it's hard to go from zero to 100, but many times when you're Paralympic athletes or when you go, you start at minus 100, then you go to zero and then you have to go to 100. And that journey is, is phenomenal. The athlete story is almost like the microcosm of the big macro story of London to, to, to Rio. And then we sort of like thought, well, with the origin story, we'll find places to thread it in. We won't try and do it chronologically. So those decisions happened fairly quickly. And then when we were identifying what athletes we really wanted to work with, we focused on athletes who either had performed at both London and at Rio, or who dreamt where they saw London, like Bebe, for example. She was at London as a sort of mascot for Italy, but she wasn't allowed to compete because she was too young. But she dreamt that one day she would compete. And that was such a lovely sort of storyline for us to work with. So we kind of like found that we could thread the athlete's story into that kind of triumph, disaster, triumph. Uh, three-act structure. Then it was just a question of shooting and editing it all, um, which of course is a very big question. But I think it always helps when you have a roadmap and you sort of have a sense of what 
the direction of travel is. And we also had this idea of, you know, as Ian says, we look, we actually analyse superhero movies, how they work, what the tropes were. And I remember at one point we had index cards on our edit, on the wall of our edit, just to remind us that because there were nice resonances between the stories and that also enabled us to elevate it from it not just being a sports movie, but the stakes are bigger, really, with the Paralympics. The stakes are about saving the world for the 15%, about giving people who have disabilities a platform. You know, so often in life, those of us who have all of our physical faculties and mental faculties, we tend to turn our gaze away from people with disabilities. We kind of felt it was really important that the film gave a platform and made that seem somehow less, you know, you were talking before, Seth, about how it's an uncomfortable subject. Well, we wanted, that was very much a conscious thing, not to make it comfortable, but to sort of like really show our common humanity um, and and do that by really showing these extraordinary people and athletes um, for for the great human beings that they are. AJ and I always say we love documentaries where we learn something. So two things. I love how you gave us a history lesson of how the Paralympics started with Ludwig Gutmann, which I don't think a lot of people know about. And then the other thing is I think a lot of people think the Paralympics are immediately tied to the Olympics and run by the IOC. But it seems like there's definitely a disconnect there and it's not quite like that. So I love how you brought that to life with Rio and the challenges that they had there. We've realized as well since 2017, the president of the IPC, Andrew Parson, which is interviewed in one of the characters, has managed to broker the deal with the IOC. So despite there's still two different organizations, they've got now tie into 2032, which is again, another victory for the Paralympic movement. I suspect the IOC has seen the commercial potential. You hear a lot from the Olympic athletes. People always try to to talk about the humble beginnings of some of the athletes. It's you know because they need to build the story in the Paralympic movement. Every single of these athletes has an amazing story. And literally, I think one of the hard things for Peter and I was to make uh, to reduce the selection of all the people we could have interviewed. Pull the curtain back a little bit, and each one of you give us your most emotional time on set working with these athletes? I had a special moment because as well, the, the whole journey was quite incredible um, with another American athlete, Matt Stutzman, which is born with our arm and is one of the greatest uh, archer, let alone, you know, if someone hasn't seen the film and listened to us there, just type Matt Stutzman archery. And, you know, he's one of the great American heroes in a way, you know, born with our arms and having to reinvent, you know, it's a bit, I love with Matt. If you like sports, sport had to be invented. We're not born with sports. It's like soccer. Suddenly someone had a ball and started, oh, we're not going to use our hands. We're just going to play with our feet. Snowboarding, same thing. And people, great human beings, push their sport and reinvent things. And it becomes an art form, if you like sport. And Matt has created an art form of living. And when we went to see him and, you know, we drove through a part of the United States at the time it was pre-elections with some signs in some places, which I wouldn't personally politically agree with. Matt is an humble guy. He loves cars. He's actually an amazing mechanic. He wanted to be a NASCAR driver. So this guy in his small town America made us go into his car, which is definitely completely pumped up, fast and furious style. And with no arm, 
started to do spins and run down and fast towards the red light and eh, screeches and stuff like that. And you're like, where the fuck am I doing? You've got our producers on the side of the road saying, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. We're not interested to be doing this. We're not interested. And those moments are magical moments because Matt, and Matt made me drive one of his car and just ram into one of his car. And he's just like, oh my God, we are so connected by passion. And even if we are from completely different backgrounds, I think he was raised with a quite religious family. We just go on like house on fire. Literally, we went to eat Japanese with his family, with his children, his girlfriend. And we, he was eating sushi with his feet in chopsticks. It's just an amazing moment. And I was just like, I don't want to be anywhere else. And all those moments were just magical. And Matt was like a friend forever. That, that, that's one of my magical moments, I think. Yeah, that, that, that definitely. I, I would totally agree with that. Damn it, he got in there first. Mind you, there were so many. There were, there, there were so many. I, I think that, that one of our very first interviews was with um, Jean-Baptiste Allais. We had dinner with him in London. And all he wanted to talk about while he was having dinner with us, he didn't want to talk about his life or his career or his, you know, preparing for the Tokyo Olympics or anything like that. He wanted to talk about where the best clubs were in London, that he could go. And it was like he was in London to kind of do an interview with us, but actually much more importantly, he was going to go partying. <laughs> and I remember coming out of the interview and saying to Ian, how are we going to interview this guy? I mean, he's... You know, he doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be very serious. Then he walked into the interview the next morning, slightly hungover, it has to be said. And I think one of the first questions is, is was something like, why did you choose long jump as your, as your sport? What drew you to it? And he started to talk, you know, in a way that you could have heard, si there was silence in the room. I mean, crew of 10 people, you could have heard a pin drop. He started talking about what long jump meant to him internally, in terms of how he tries to, overcome and leap past the trauma that he experienced it was incredibly emotional and he then started to say you know we are we also asked him you know what does it feel like to be part of the Paralympic community and he said without us saying anything by the way you know Ian was talking before about the superhero motif that we have that we both were you know he started to say well you know being part of the Paralympic movement it's like it's like you're one of the Avengers. This is what we do. This is we, we kind of like come together and we kind of like save the world. And again, you know, I think throughout that interview, we all had goosebumps and tears in our eyes because it was an extraordinary interview. We interviewed him in July and May that year, I had gone with uh, the writer uh, producer um, to Cannes for the film festival. Just, you know, as producers, you go and sell the project. And we got off the plane. We took a cab to go to Cannes. And I got off of the cab. I spotted a guy with some shorts and an amazing prosthetic, like the coolest prosthetic. And we just had been offered the film. So we were in the middle of the research. I had just taken two, three days. And we had exchanged a look with this, this guy. And I just thought, I want people to be proud. I want people to wear shorts. I want, I want, them, I want them to bling their, their blades. I want people to bling their, their wheelchair. You know, why not? We worked out that actually Jean-Baptiste lived in Nice. And actually, he was in Canada at the same time. And I told him exactly how he looked. And, that was, and he showed me one of his pimp-up prosthetics. And that was Jean-Baptiste. So out of all places, I didn't even know at the time we were going to interview him. The planet Earth or the energies had placed us in the same space at the same time. He kind of remember having looked towards me. But I knew we had just locked eyes. And he was in Cannes looking for a good party, right? 
<laughs> I tell you what, he tells a powerful story because that was one of those that I had to stop. You know, I paused and and the way you guys edited it was beautiful and the music and everything about it was just like, man, this is really, really heavy. But it was just a well-told story. So kudos for you guys for that. Yeah, and 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 again, Otto Bonham, which is our editor, which is an amazing editor. Literally, we gave him the interview, we gave him the visuals, we gave him the stuff. And I remember, you know, we went off shooting some other stuff because you're constantly going in the edit and then you go stuff. And he made a three, four minutes edit of that. And I think, and that was one of the first edit, would you say, Peter? It was. It, it was literally the first bit of edited material. We were in a Taco Bell in the middle of <laughs> Illinois or in Champaign, <laughs> Illinois or somewhere like that, driving to Matt Stutzman's actually. And the link landed in our inbox and we were watching it over our tacos with the rest of the crew and everyone was sort of like open mouth. I think directors always get a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. Okay, deservedly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think, you know, we could we would be nothing without the people that surround us. And I think, you know, Otto, our brilliant cinematographer, Will Pugh, you know, Daniel Pemberton, uh, the composer. And we used that edit to actually get Daniel on board. Yeah, that's we, right. I remember, you know, the way you got Move, AJ, he moved so many people. He moved people because the story, he moved people the way we were going to tell it and not just use disability porn for the sake of it or use his, you know, we were not gratuitously using his backstory to, to just pull emotional string. His backstory made him who he is and made him his journey to come to France. Actually, right now, because Jean-Baptiste had a bit of issue with the, the French uh, delegation, he's going to compete for Burundi. And Burundi's never had a Paralympian. So he could potentially write the story of the country that actually made him, but at the same time took everything from him. It's just beautiful human stories. You see what I mean? It's just like from the, the worst comes the best, comes back some of the worst. It's like all of our life story. Anyway, I could go on and on. And yeah. on. <laughs> uh, it was excellent. I tell you what, there was an oh shit moment for me too as it's going. I see one of your interviews pop up and I'm like, oh shit, is that Prince Harry? Like, how did he get involved? Because you could tell this was coming from the heart for him. Walk us through that process. Amazing interviewee people. We amazing interviewer. No. <laughs> Greg Nugent, the producer, had a very strong relationship with him, the Duke of Sussex. We is not Prince Harry anymore. Harry got um, actually created the Invictus Games in 2014, which is mainly veteran with uh, physical disabilities. I think some people that struggle mentally as well can take part. This entire world for him was very close to his heart. Plus, while we've made a lot of research about the, um, the Paralympic movement, we've seen that his father and his grandmother was very involved. They are patron of the of the movement, and they've been very involved. They've opened the Stunt Mandolin Stadium. And, and so we just thought it'd be really interesting to have a contemporary voice and a young man with a lot of energy and had done his own thing with that sort of movement, but still could relate us back to his own family history with the movement. We struggle a bit with, you know, before the interview thinking, will it look shoehorn? Are we using a celebrity for the sake of it? But as you rightly said, he's very candid and he has suffered himself massively from the public eye, mental health issues. He has understood huge amount from working with people with disability. So at the end of the interview, we were like, oh my God, it's actually a very strong interview. And he actually knows some of the Paralympians. I mean, he, he he knows, for example, knows Tatiana McFadden very well. It's just like, you know, he can talk about them as almost like a fanboy. Greg had got in touch with Harry when 
the Paralympics in, Brazil, in Rio looked as though they might be in danger, not just of being cancelled, but the stadiums would be empty. And Harry had joined an initiative called Fill the Seats to kind of like raise funds so that kids from the barrios in the favelas in Rio could be taken to the games. You know, that was a really, really important initiative. And so Harry, yeah, the Invictus Games, but he also had that direct connection. And it meant that we could sort of like, one thing we really like to do in our films is, you know, really thread the voices together. So it never feels like, although we shoot all of the uh, interviewees individually, we like them it to feel in the edit as though they're almost speaking to each other, finishing each other's sentences almost. And Harry just slotted in perfectly with other figures from the movement, like Andrew Parsons, president of the uh, International Paralympic Movement. So it was great. It was, um, and it was uh, great to meet him. And it was, I was always a bit worried about meeting him because um, my my directing partner here is a staunch anti-royalist, and <laughs> I cannot believe. That the Brits can go around talking to of themselves as being completely democratic. But that's another thing. I think it's really good that Joe has met up with Macron because there's a lot of connection between the French and the and the US and that connection should stay there. You know, the French helped uh, to kick the Brits out of the US. Let's not forget. <laughs> I love the quote that Harry had when he said, I didn't feel bad for the athletes when talking about Rio. I felt bad for the people who couldn't see these athletes because the people who see these athletes are more affected and inspired than the athletes themselves. And when he said that, you know, I really felt that. Yeah, he had witnessed in London that amazing connection between the public and the athletes. Everyone in London talked more about the Paralympics than the Olympics after the events had happened. And I think he saw that impact. And he just didn't want that to be missed out. And we made a big deal, a big bit out of it in the film, you know, the Carioca, which, you know, the people of Brazil are such an amazing sports lover. We know it through football. We know it through a lot of it. And the Paralympic movement in Brazil, Andrew Parson was the president of the National Paralympic Committee for Brazil. You can see his passion. Now he's the president of the whole organization. But the Brazilian Paralympians are extremely well represented. So for them, it was like, oh my God, it's our home territory. We've got amazingly strong team in the blind football, very strong nation. You know, the US and the French are lagging behind a lot of, you know, those sporting associations are not trusting and not uh, putting enough money and energy behind their power athletes where Brazil did, and thanks to Andrew. So he was really like, oh my God, my people are going to miss out on seeing it. So it was almost like a blessing in disguise to see one of our lead characters as the president, which at the time was really one of our three musketeers because we, we tried to treat Andrew and all of them as almost they were trying to save the games. You know, you could really sense it that for him, it would have been a huge mistake. And that was amazing. I wanted to ask you about the Greek sculptures. Were those actually made? Because I know then the cracking later seemed like CGI during the Rio Olympics. So talk to me about these sculptures. Where did the idea come from? How were the statues created? Well, I, I hate to say it, I mean, I really, really hate to say it, but that was actually Ian's idea. I mean, I really, really, I, it pains me to say this in public, but it's a... And then, and then Peter spent six months on, on his computer making them. So they're all CGI. Um, we wow. worked with a brilliant visual effects company in London called Time-Based Arts, who Ian had worked with and, and kind of like come up with, really, when, while you were working in pop promos, right? And, and, and yeah. On, yeah. On, on commercials. And I got to work with, um, with them through Ian, because we... Pulled them into on McQueen, mm. and they produced these extraordinary sort of like skulls on McQueen. And when we were thinking about what language 
uh, uh, um, brainstorming how we what we what we could do to kind of elevate the Paralympians. We were very struck. I mean, Ian was talking about the, the those classical statues, Greek statues of Olympians, and why do we never see disabled people portrayed in that sort of like heroic way? But yet, the the, the classical statues are because of age and wear and tear now missing a limb or whatever. So it suddenly seemed like all of that came together and that was exactly the, the direction that we should go in. The other thing, Peter, do you remember when we were looking at it, it's just so many of the statues through time and history have missed limbs, have had parts of their body changing and stuff, and we still find them beautiful. They still take their place in the Louvre. And again, as Peter said, many times if you look at a Renaissance painting or, or any religious painting, anyone with this disability is the, the mendiant, is the beggar in the corner. So a little bit of our anger issues and our political incorrectness comes up. Why don't we actually place things back where they belong? Why don't we, you know, recreate history? You know, we got offered uh, but we couldn't do it with an amazing team of people, Scout Productions in the US, uh, a series about equal, about the um, LGBTQI movement. And the LGBTQI movement, because so many people had to live in hiding for so many, many years, there's no visual representation of the, the, the LGBTQI movement post, you know, pre the 1960s, you know. And, and it was the same with people with disability. It's never been celebrated visually. So again, it was a way for us, you know, like graffiti art <laughs> to place, to force history to recognize through a contemporary interpretation of, of, of that movement. And, but using something ancient. It looks so real. <laughs> so I was yeah. hoping that these statues existed and they were gonna live at the offices of the Paralympics or, you know. Well, the yeah, because they created in CGI, they could be, you know, now with like, um, with a uh, um, 3D printer, 3D. they could be made. Yeah. You know, it's just a, it's just a physical cost. Who is going to pay for that? So yes, they could be made. The way we've done it, you would have to do it like that to actually make them physically anyway. Mm -hmm. So the, the process right. is the same. And I remember Peter and I, at the end of every single of our interviews, placing little colored dots on the half-naked babies of all of our Paralympians to be able to take loads of pictures for the guys to, to try to, to create them in, in CGI. And at the end, they told us, guys, what you've done is amazing. But actually, we couldn't use it. So we just used some pictures of them and actually created. So us, this test, we have got pictures of us with Matt Stutzman. Matt's really wanted one on his uh, eh -eh as well because he found it so funny of us, me and Peter, on our knees, putting little dots all over his butt and all over the rest of his body. It's just, it was just funny. <laughs> Peter, you alluded to the storytelling, and there was a moment in there when Ludwig Gutmann's daughter, Eva, told the story about Russia, and then boom, next thing you know, you, you set up the whole story with uh, Tatiana. And I just thought the way that that was weaved was just very well done. It just grabbed me. My question to you guys really is, how did you get the name Rising Phoenix? Well, first of all, thank you for that. For, for that, I mean, that was one of the things, by the way, that you know, that that's one of the things where you have to leave things to accident a little bit, yeah. because when we, when, no, no, when you, it's a, it's a craft, 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 craft. <laughs> you know, this is one of those things. That we had a few, a few moments where we suddenly realised there was a rhyme in two stories, and we had to somehow that would be a wonderful way of cutting them together. So, you know, those things fall into your hands a little bit, and you just have to look out for them and wait for them and 
when you get them, grab them. If we don't lie with the with this project, there were so many themes, there were so many characters. We tried to harness things through theme. You know, do we jump from a few of our characters to express discrimina- discrimination, to express a family tragedy, to express certain things? But suddenly, as Peter said, that kind of felt suddenly we were repeating beats. We always want to be careful that our beats are not repeated. And that segue, that little branching out from, from Russia, that's one of the things that attracted us with Tatiana's story, the fact that she was you know, um, adopted from Russia, almost left to die in an orphanage. And the segue was, yeah, was a blessing in disguise. We struggled for a title. I have to say, uh, it was Untitled Paralympian Project in our heads for a long time. Yeah. And I think there was a point where you have to, you, you start thinking, well, what is your title going to be? And there was a lot of brainstorming between us, the producers, Netflix, um, about what the title should be. And ultimately, I can't remember who it was, but somebody who just said, isn't Bebe's story about Rising Phoenix, you know, isn't that sort of really the emblem of the whole film? Because all of them, all of our athletes are like Rising Phoenixes. The games themselves are like a Rising Phoenix. And it just, you know, the moment that was said, it just became obvious that that was the title that, you know, if we'd been clever enough, we'd have pulled it that from day one. So That's actually true. It came from the marketing team of, of of Netflix. They had a lot of names. And we always wanted to make something a bit more not more, but quite gutsy and quite quite in your face and unapologetic. Rising Phoenix just became everybody's favorite and 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 the contender. And because Baby as well, early on in the film mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. that that's the scout name she was given. Obviously, with a really thick Italian accent, they called me the Rising, you know, the Rising Phoenix. And as Peter said, there was this strong connection to actually the concept of always having to reinvent themselves or to start from the ashes up. So, yeah, it becomes very clear. Yeah, and and I, I would just say, I'd love, I mean, I don't know if you're going to ask about the music, but that title became enormously important to to uh, generating a title song um, for Daniel Pemberton. And we'd always thought that we wanted to kind of like potentially have a kind of a hip-hop-styled um uh, title track at the end of the film. What happened is that uh, we had a great music supervisor who found uh, this disabled, this collective of disability, uh, disabled rappers uh, with different, very different kinds of disabilities uh, based in Oakland, California called Crip Hop. And we worked with them to identify three or four, uh, three or four rappers who could work together um, and create the lyrics for the song that Daniel then sort of like Compose the music for, and he used a lot of uh, disabled musicians within the the the, the school the as well. So, so all that concept for him got him excited to actually work with people he wouldn't first of all think of. You know what is amazing, and I think that's why we were all so excited about using uh, hip hop or rap or whatever we want to call the genre. So many names is the fact that it's all about the voice, the the tone, the timber, and and the ability of rapping. How fascinating it is that actually someone with cerebral palsy, their voice and the way they're going to deliver is going to be different. And that's why we thought it was amazing. It was actually like our athletes who had to recreate sports for themselves or to do their own thing. So that connection was just amazing. And, you know, we grew very close to um, to the four rappers themselves. And it's the greatest film. I've got a story in 
in themselves about how the film got made and the different elements. And if that narrative is as beautiful as the film, suddenly pieces fall together. And again, luckily, uh, many times it's got nothing to do with the, the people making it. Somehow things fall into place. And when they fall into place, it's, 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 it's actually magical. And that's why we're lucky to have you guys here to tell us the story. Because I have to tell you, that credits at the end, when they started rapping, the, the music grabbed me first, the beat grabbed me, and then the lyrics. And then I started listening. I'm like, oh, these kids are gifted. And like, you know, just the way they rapped the whole thing, it was, it was really well done. They're they fantastic. And they sort of like, they'd seen the movie and we'd given them a sort of like a little brief um, of really what the film was about and what the themes were to us and so on. And to see how they then ran with it and put their own feelings about, you know, how they'd grown up being underestimated or, or cast aside. And they put that into the song as well as echoing the themes and you know, moments from the film, because it's all done remotely. I mean, even say we've become friends with the whole crew, but it, it's all remote because obviously we were in the middle of the pandemic by then. So Daniel was working with the rappers remotely. We were all communicating remotely through the whole thing. And, and the moment that Daniel played his first sort of rough mix of the song to us on Skype, because we hadn't figured out how to use Zoom, let alone, <laughs> let alone SteamYard, guys. Um, um, you know, I just remember that moment so vividly. Of, you know, I, I, I just, you know, it's kind of like it was like a catharsis of the whole process. I just felt, you know, I felt myself just seized by the emotion of it. Um, it was so, yeah, very powerful. Magical, magical for us as well. It was very powerful to see that, the credits. I know we're a little long here, but I wanted to ask, what was the timeline for the film and how long was the first cut? We they approached us around February, March. Um, we what came year? on board um, two thousand nineteen, isn't it? Yeah, two thousand nineteen. We filmed most of it that year, two thousand nineteen, and we shot all of the interviews and all of the cinematic moment within that year, two thousand nineteen. I remember we were in Japan, South Africa in November, so pre pandemic. I mean pre-everyone knowing about the pandemic. The pandemic was probably already circulating amongst our bodies somehow. Um, and then we spent 2020, uh, we actually closed down our offices and isolated our edit suite around mid-March. When did I send everybody home, Peter? Uh, 20 March, mid-March 2020, isn't it? When we, yeah, it was a week or two weeks before actually before the, the UK closed down, just in case, because in the building where we were editing, people were saying, oh, if, if there's an outbreak, you have to leave everything, you have to leave. So he was like, we can't have our edit suite locked in there with all our material two weeks before. So we decided with the production to move everything away. We showed a few things. It wasn't like a first cut, but we had different sections of the film. September, October 2019 to Netflix, and they started to be really interested. But I would say we didn't have like a proper first cut before February 2020. I think we February, had, March. We, we'd shown a cut. I mean, thank goodness, before we had to break the edit uh, out, out and go remote, we actually had a cut of the film. Yeah. Uh, and we had discussed it with, with everyone at Netflix and with our producers. So, and we had a very strong sense of what our roadmap was going to be. And that first cut was probably, it wasn't, you know, it was probably sort of like, just under two hours or around two hours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we're quite disciplined. I mean, we don't like films to be too long. We resisted putting too much fat on it, but we then had to lose, 
we then felt we could lose and Netflix wanted us to lose, but we also felt the film needed to be a lot tighter and be closer to an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, 40 minutes. So we lost about 15 minutes, mm. um, you know, which is painful, even though we knew we had to do it. We had to lose a couple of uh, athletes that we, you know, oh. yeah. loved. not terrible though. Oh, so, Sometimes so you hear three, four hour cuts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, it, it, it was difficult, but at the same time, uh, we made sure they were representing with representative through the film. Sometimes just through the archive. So we might not have gone into the backstory. Uh, and there's two athletes. We had uh, an amazing Shingo Kunieda, an amazing um, he's back to number one um, wheelchair tennis player. And we went to Japan to film him, and we had some great cinematic sequence with him through the madness of Japan and him in there, but just couldn't make the... So we have a tiny section of a minute or so with him, and then we lost a, a, a Brit, another English athlete, wheelchair racer. But yeah, all those things are difficult, but where Peter is right is you're the only one knowing it. The audience doesn't know what you've lost. So make sure the film you show is the best version of your film. Um, we had some arguments. Netflix could have wanted mm -hmm. to take some more out, but there's a few things where we said there's no way. And the producers have been great. It's really interesting when you've got very strong producers and then they can tell you, fuck you, Netflix. Because you need to have balls to say that because they're very powerful. You know, they're very powerful. They're very clever. They're very good at the job. But you need to sometimes say, nah, nah, computer says no. Do you see what I mean? You need to stand your ground as a filmmaker. And I think... Yeah, I think you need to, 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 to get that message across to protect the, the, the end product, the, the, the film. Yeah, because it's, it's very easy. As, when you're dealing with any studio, you have to remember that the studio are making, you know, many films a year and you're just making one. And so there's a battle because you want your film to not be unique, but you want it to, you know, you want it to be true to itself. And meanwhile, the studio has discovered all kinds of ways to make films more efficient, to, to, to make... To, to, to sort of like and analyze the way that audiences respond to films. The notes that you get from the studio are very good and they really do help to tighten things up. And others, you know, if you're not careful, you, you, you turn into a kind of like a cookie cutter um, version of the film. And uh, so we had a very strong line about where we felt the film needed to be absolutely true to itself and where we couldn't sort of like agree to certain notes that were being given to us. But I think that's the same on any film, really. I have to say, it was very smooth. And even in spite of the sort of, you know, the, the, the lockdown and having to work remotely, um, it was very efficient. And when we needed to, absolutely needed to be in the studio for the, for the sound mixing and for the picture grading, you know, that, that just coincided with a small window of time where there wasn't lockdown. So we were able to do that. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a great process. You know, this film was, the story behind the film was, you know, so powerful. Um, and, and the experience of making it was so powerful. So, you know, that really, um, I hope that really does kind of like come through in the film itself. It does. I have a question for you on premiere date on Netflix. Do you still watch it or have you seen it enough times that you're like, I'm not watching again? I think we all did watch it because the way they released it was quite special. It was going to be one of the first fully worldwide release. So they released it in the whole world at the same time. So it was quite special to feel. And it was a tweet, tweet along as well. I think they had, it was one of the most watched uh, Netflix thing all at the same time in the documentary uh, in, in the history of Netflix. So that was quite a special moment to be part of. 
That's awesome. I think everyone needs to watch this film on Netflix, Rising Phoenix, fantastic, powerful film about the Paralympians and the Paralympics. And I have to say, I think you turned around the film pretty quickly considering you started in 2019. In 15 months, 15, 16 months. All right, real quick, let's get into some quick hitters. I wanted to ask Ian and Peter, we can start with Ian. Where is your favorite place to go to in the United States? I've got an amazing memory. I was 16 and my cousin, which was only a few years older than me, I didn't have a dad, so I wasn't traveling. I was traveling a little bit, but I had a grandmother, which was really ill, so I'd spend a lot. And he took me and we traveled the whole US. We went to New York and we took a bus that drive down to Orlando and we rented a car and he was 21, 22, so he could just rent a car. And I drove hours and hours being 16 on Route 66 and all over across the United States. And at the 16 years old, you know, I was into American culture. I was crazy about basketball, blah, blah, blah. So the United States, big, big thing. And I started my, I moved to New York to study filmmaking. If the green card hadn't been an issue, I'd be in the United States of America. I would have a kid there. My whole life in London would have been in the US. So it was one of the two places. And I almost moved to LA and moved my kids to the, to the school there uh, just before Rising Phoenix stopped me to move to the US. Well, for me, I, I think, I mean, I love the States, um, I, 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 but I, I, I has to be LA because, you know, you grow up wanting to be in movies and seeing LA is in is such a key part of that world and it's a great location in so many films that I love. And so going to LA for the first time and actually staying in Venice in that hotel, it's kind of like a pretty scuzzy hotel, but it was where Charlie Chaplin had lived, um, on, you know, practically on the seafront in Venice. I can't remember what it's called. It was such an amazing, magical experience. And I kind of felt my whole life had kind of like led me there. It's a place that I just love going back to because it sort of like feels both like work, but also quite a magical place. The light, the ocean, um, the, the 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 hikes, the the trails. Yeah, I, I, so it has a certain magic. I'm sorry, that's I feel terrible because that's such a cliche to say, but but, but, but that's the truth. We're, we're just glad you don't hate the United States. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, I love London, so we can we can we can go there. We can do some housework. <laughs> you can come to Miami anytime you want. My last question for both of you, and I'll start with you, Peter. What advice do you give to young filmmakers when they're trying to break into the industry? I mean, apart from obviously saying, don't do it. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it is hard. It, I mean, it's really, really hard. And you have to really know that you want to do it. And I think a lot of people get attracted by the the false glamour of the industry. They get into it, they want to get into it for the wrong reasons. When I talk to people, I kind of like really like to find out what they're about, why they want to break into it, why they feel film is a, you know, is um, a medium that they want to give their lives to, even though it is going to be hard. And then I think, you know, sometimes I do say to people, don't do it. Um, and, and sometimes I say, because everyone wants to direct. I mean, literally everyone that you talk to wants to direct. And actually, there are so many amazing career paths in film. I even think in another life, I would love to have been working in distribution or, or, or sales because, you know, you, you spend your life going to film festivals, buying and selling films, watching films, you know, uh, um, thinking about how to market them and generate excitement and make them into events. That's all really exciting to me. So, so there are so many different career paths. Obviously, there's all the technical career paths. Um, and I think it's really taking the time to figure out what if if this is the industry that you have to be involved with um, and you're really seized by it in the way that 
you know, Ian and I were talking about how we were grabbed by it when we were growing up to not think about the obvious thing, but to really think what is what, what what's the right what's the right career path for me within it. I think the term it's in the term it's an industry, and I think many many people get a bit confused that it's only an art form. You know, it is not only an art form. It's a it's an industry that uses emotion, pictures, sound, music to create a product in the end. So when I say that, it's not to get disheartened. And as Peter said, it's to look at it as an industry with loads of different crafts that I needed and need cumulation. Another thing I say, I always say, I've said that, because at Pulse Film, I used to have a lot of young directors and stuff. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. If you're into something that you want to get there to zero to 100 meter, not the right industry. You know, you hardly see anyone making a movie before they're in their 30s. And actually, the majority is more north of 40 because you need to leave. You need to accumulate experience. You need to, you know, even a million or two million dollars is nothing compared to some of the films that are produced. But that's still a huge amount of money for, to, to accumulate and respect money. Be a craft person, but some people will invest money. If you don't respect the money, it's going to be really hard. Respect the art, respect your colleagues, respect all of this, but it is an industry. And if this industry doesn't generate money, it's going to die if it doesn't generate interest. So when you're a youngster and you just go in there and you think you're going to babble because you're amazing and you've got a huge amount of talent, always remember that everybody thought like this when they came in. And you just got to be patient. And, and I think I find... You know, we have a lot of um, conversation about inclusion and making sure representative on screen, behind the screen, etc. I think one of the main things that has been a massive struggle for many, many communities is actually sometimes sustaining themselves for long enough to get a break. Many families and many people in, my t- in our team, it's not the first career mom and dad would like want you to do. It's not the first career that anyone in the family could have even thought of doing, you know, let alone someone might not even have gone to university and stuff. That's them. You are you. It doesn't matter uh, no one in your family going to uni. It doesn't matter that mom, dad, drive a cab or anything like this. Filmmaking is not about privilege. It's not about anything like this. Filmmaking is about human emotion and stories. Those human emotions are common to all of us. That doesn't mean we can express them all the same way, but they come into all of us, and stories are very much down to you. Many people which doesn't think they've got the story because they haven't seen it on screen, that means they've got a story because we haven't seen it on screen. So that would be my advice, and I, I do quite a few talks as well, Peter, as well. It's just like, you are unique. If actually no one in your family has done it, and you don't see anyone that has got the same path as you, that look like you, that think like you. So just carry on being unique. I think people will look for unique voices. So yeah, be unique. Well, Peter and Ian, thank you so much for this candid and entertaining conversation. I know for myself and AJ, you know, we really enjoyed it. As we did too. And you don't need to cut anything about us insulting Netflix or anything like this. They already know. (laughs) Wow, an amazing conversation with Peter and Ian. So much to synthesize and learn from. We really thank them for their time. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you do, we'll give you a big shout out. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Beyond the Lens. And that's a wrap.